Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith, and this time we're delving into the science of heart disease. We've been to the UK's leading heart conference to hear from the researchers who are trying to discover the causes and new treatments for one of the world's most important diseases. Coming up, why air pollution and heart attacks are linked, the role of salt in high blood pressure, and a vaccine for heart disease. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Is your chest a bit tight? Feeling short of breath? Sweaty and nauseated, possibly a bit lightheaded? Maybe you've noticed an odd pain crawling down your arm and up your neck. If so, you might be having a heart attack. Heart attacks get a pretty bad press, and with good reason. According to the British Heart Foundation, 180 people a day in the UK will die of a heart attack. Heart attacks happen when one of the blood vessels supplying the heart becomes blocked by a blood clot called a coronary thrombus. This cuts off the flow of oxygen and sugars to the affected part of the heart muscle, causing it to run out of energy and the muscle cells begin to die. When this occurs, heart attack victims experience a feeling of being crushed or squeezed, accompanied by a dull, aching pain in the centre of the chest. Someone having a heart attack usually looks pale, sweaty and clammy and their pulse rate might become irregular, be going too fast, or running too slowly. The first thing a doctor or paramedic will do to investigate is an ECG, or electrocardiogram. This is an electrical tracing of the heart. Heart attacks often produce characteristic changes to the normal ECG pattern, which can also reveal where in the heart the damage is occurring. Doctors can also use blood tests to confirm when a heart attack has taken place. One of these is called a troponin test. It looks for molecules called troponins that leak into the bloodstream from damaged heart muscle cells. Patients who have suffered a recent heart attack will have high levels of troponin in their blood. Following the diagnosis, doctors will quickly try to reopen the blocked artery to restore blood flow and reduce the damage done to the heart. This is called an angioplasty procedure. It involves threading a fine cannula from a wrist or leg artery into the heart arteries and using x-rays to spot where the blockage is. A balloon is then inflated inside the clogged artery to squash the blood clot out of the way, so blood can flow again. The balloon is removed and replaced with a small metal cage called a stent, which is inserted to prop the vessel open so that it cannot close up again afterwards. Patients are then given blood thinning drugs, like aspirin, to ensure that further blood clots don't form and block the stent. Usually, people recover quite well, but the area of muscle damaged by the heart attack can form a scar which can reduce the ability of the heart to pump, which means some people are at risk of heart failure. After a heart attack, patients are given help to reduce their risk factors, which includes advice to take regular exercise, control their cholesterol and blood pressure, eat healthily, and not to smoke. Some good advice there. And Marie Rotman and Adam Murphy are going to be back with more quickfire facts, this time on how we can each reduce our own heart attack risk later on in the programme. But before that, to how we can more accurately and rapidly diagnose a heart attack. Now, most people are aware of the pressures that face accident and emergency departments, and a significant workload for emergency doctors is the assessment of patients with chest pain. Now, this can be one sign of a heart attack, so it's very important to take it seriously, but it takes a long time. And the majority of people coming into hospital with chest pain aren't actually having a heart attack, meaning that acute care beds can be occupied for long periods of time unnecessarily. Now, doctors have developed a new blood test that might be able to help speed things up. My name is Tom Kaya. I'm a British Heart Foundation Clinical Research Fellow and I work at St Thomas's Hospital in central London. 
We're looking at uh, the diagnosis of uh, myocardial infarction, so in layman's terms, a heart attack. It's a huge public problem. It affects about 2.2 million people a year that present with chest pain to the emergency department in England alone. And only 10% of them actually have myocardial infarction, so have a heart attack that warrants further treatment. But the other 90%, because they've got the symptom, might end up with a whole bunch of unnecessary investigations and possibly even treatments. Exactly. Big heart attacks show themselves on their heart trace, but their heart trace abnormalities are only present in about a third of all patients with a heart attack. In the two-third of patients that don't have any ECG abnormalities, we have to perform blood tests in the emergency department and often admit them to hospital for ongoing observation and treatment, as you can imagine, because 90% of people actually presenting with chest pain do not have a heart attack. It places a huge burden on the healthcare system, but more importantly also for the patients that sit in an emergency department and simply want to have an answer to the question, did I have a heart attack or not? And the present generation of blood tests that we have, are they not any good? The blood test we use at the moment, which is cardiac troponin, is excellent. It helps us diagnose a heart attack very clearly. The problem with cardiac troponin is that it comes out from the heart muscle at a relatively late stage. So if you look at the guidelines that many of us use, they advocate the use of those blood tests only in patients that had symptoms for more than three hours. What's the new test? So the new test is cardiomyosin binding protein C. It's a mouthful. We abbreviate it to MYC. It's similar to troponin. It's a protein that forms part of the heart muscle. And that comes out of injured heart muscle. So when someone has a real heart attack, damage to the muscle releases that into the bloodstream and you could pick it up. Exactly. Any sort of damage to the heart muscle would release these proteins, but in particular in patients with a heart muscle injury due to a heart attack, uh, we see very high levels of mycea. We also see high levels of cardiac troponin, but at a later stage. So by having a protein that comes up in the bloodstream much earlier, we can, in essence, test more patients and give them an earlier answer. How quickly does the concentration of the MYC come up in these people and how much faster is it than the existing troponin tests you do? You probably have a twice as quick release of the MYC protein comparing it to troponin. If you look at the time until you can safely make a discharge decision, that is also brought down to probably two hours rather than three hours with the cardiac troponin assay. Using MYC, we have shown that we can tell about 17% more patients double the amount of patients than with cardiac troponin that they didn't have a heart attack with the first blood test at presentation to the emergency department and therefore these patients can already be reassured and don't require any further assessment. I was thinking also it might be very useful in primary care settings like general practice because lots of people don't go straight to the hospital when they have chest pain. They go and see their GP and say, oh, by the way, been up all night with indigestion. Do you think this could be a heart attack? And the GP then has to make a decision, and this could help them. It certainly could. The problem we have at the moment is that to bring this to a handheld device is very complicated. You're trying to detect the equivalent of a few molecules of a protein in a finger prick blood sample, for example, which so far no troponin handheld device has managed to achieve. Because there is so much more of mycea in the heart muscle, and it rises to much higher levels after the injury to the heart muscle, we are confident that we could translate the mycea onto a handheld device and therefore allow the measurement in a primary care environment like at the GP, but also be done by paramedics when they get called out to a patient complaining of chest pain. They could essentially do a risk assessment then and there with a finger prick blood test. Tom Kyer, he's based at St Thomas's Hospital in London. Now, also with me today are two heart specialists or cardiologists, they're Tian Zhao and Sharon Wilson. They're both at Cambridge's Addenbrooke's Hospital. In a moment, we'll hear how salt can affect your blood pressure. But first, Tian, can you just tell us when Tom was referring to chest pain there, why do people with a heart problem classically get chest pain? Well, the reason is that the heart, like any other muscle in the body, needs blood for it to function. And there are three vessels supplying the heart with blood. And if there's a narrowing in any of these blood vessels, the blood can't get through and you don't get enough oxygen and energy to the heart. And it gets essentially like a cramp-like state where it can't function well enough. And the reflection of that is that you get chest tightness. It may go down your arm and it may go up your neck. And that's what classically people call angina. Why does it go all over the place, neck, arm and so on, if it's happening in your heart in the centre of your chest? 
the organs in your body aren't supplied by nerves uh, that feel like the skin does. So sometimes when you get distress in the heart, the body perceives it in different ways. And for example, in heart patients, they perceive it up the neck and the left arm and across the chest. That pain is classically referred to as angina. Does angina mean, though, that you're actually having a heart attack? Or is it possible to have that pain and not actually be doing heart attack damage to your heart? Uh, Exactly. So angina is typically pain that is rather predictable. So, for example, if you walk too briskly or you're rushing upstairs, you get chest tightness and also going up into your arm. But if you stop, that goes away. Or if you use a puff of GTM, which is a, a drug that Glycerol trinitrate. Yeah, that relieves the pain. A heart attack is when you get chest pain that doesn't go away and it's continuous and it lasts for a long time or often at rest as well. And Sharon, when someone has a cardiac arrest, how does that relate to this story? What is one of those? A cardiac arrest is an electrical fault of the heart rather than a heart attack, which is a plumbing problem. So if you have a cardiac arrest, your heart electrically has stopped. So the patient is usually unconscious. They will not have a pulse that you can feel. And this is a more significantly serious situation because you don't have time. If you've had a patient who's had a heart attack, you've still got blood supply to the other parts of the heart and they can get to a hospital or to medical safety. Um, But a cardiac arrest, you need to respond to in an emergent way. So you can have a heart attack but not necessarily have a cardiac arrest but you might do if you have a very serious heart attack and it causes an electrical problem in the heart. Yes if it's a significant heart attack you can cause damage to the main pumping chamber of the heart which causes the heart to actually get into a stunned state it doesn't pump effectively and then you go and have a cardiac arrest or you can have a heart attack which causes direct damage to the electrical circuits within the heart which can cause a cardiac arrest but you can also have a cardiac arrest without having a heart attack so people who've had previous damage to the heart can get abnormal electrical circuits set up within the left ventricle which can cause some problems and they can go on and have cardiac arrests without having a heart attack at that specific time. And Tian, after someone's had a heart attack, how does the heart recover and is the damage to it permanent or does it get better? Unfortunately, the heart does not regenerate itself. So the cells that have have died or or have, have become permanently damaged usually stay that way and become scar tissue. Some parts of the heart which have been partially damaged can recover. So you do get some recovery of the heart, but unfortunately, large parts of it is permanent. Tian Zhao, thank you very much. And also Sharon Wilson, there. they're with us throughout the programme. Now, one of the reasons why someone might suffer from a heart attack, slightly surprisingly, is air pollution. And according to the WHO, that's the World Health Organization, air pollution is now the world's largest single environmental health risk. And rates of heart attacks and strokes do indeed surge on days with low air quality. But why that happens is a mystery. Or at least it was, until scientists in Scotland began asking volunteers to breathe in gold nanoparticles. My name's Dave Newby. I'm uh, the British Heart Foundation Professor of Cardiology at the University of Edinburgh. What we know about the particles of air pollution is they're tiny. They behave like a gas, so they get really deep down right into the alveoli of the lungs, which is the, the base sac right at the very bottom. And we believe that some of these particles, either within cells or on their own, jump across into the bloodstream. When you say jump across, so I breathe in some particulates from the street out there they'll get right into the bottom of my lung and then they're actually getting into the blood so particles of traffic pollution are travelling around my body, you yeah. think? So well, that's been one of our challenges, actually, is to design a study to see whether they can actually get into the bloodstream. So we did this study taking gold nanoparticles and got people to breathe in a fine aerosol of these particles, which were the same size as you get out of a diesel engine, for example. And the reason we chose gold, it's not harmful, it's inert. But the second reason is the body shouldn't have any gold inside it. So if we can find evidence of gold inside the body, then it must have come from these inhaled particles. So what we did is we got various people, healthy volunteers to begin with, to breathe in um, a very fine aerosol vapour of gold. And what we found was that when we took blood samples for them, for days and hours after they breathed in, we could start to detect the gold. And it's present in their blood, and it's present in their urine. So not only gone into the blood, it had been filtered out by the kidney, gone into your bladder, and there it was in your urine. So the next thing we did was say, well, that's a bit scary. Um, What about patients who've had a stroke or something like that? Because when you've had a stroke, if you have disease in your neck, your carotid artery, there's often a furring up and plaque, which is what causes heart attacks and strokes. 
And these people often have that removed surgically. So what we did is we got them to breathe in the day before their operation some of the gold particles. They went through surgery and they took out this plaque and then we analysed that plaque to see if we could see any gold in it. And lo and behold, we did. So what that's telling us is, okay, gold's not the same as what comes out of an engine, but they're the same size and we can prove that these particles have gone from the lung into the bloodstream and actually gone to the diseased areas of the body. Uh, and that's quite a powerful message, really. doesn't tell you, though, that when they get to that site in the body that they're the cause of the mischief, though? Absolutely not, no. And um, what it's just showing is that it gets to there. Now, we have done some experiments looking at how the blood vessels behave when you've been exposed to dilute diesel exhaust. So we did some studies in Sweden with some great friends, uh, Thomas Sangstrom and Anders Blomberg, and they had an exposure chamber where we diluted down diesel exhaust and got people to cycle in it. Hang on a minute. So you, you put people in a shed and pipe in diesel exhaust and say, just breathe this on an exercise bike? Yeah, yeah it's, um, it's, yes. Um, <laughs> so some people have challenged us with that. In fact, the BHF, some of the, the office staff raised it with me. And I pointed out to them that the dilute exposure that we're giving was the same as the pollution monitoring station around the corner from the British Heart Foundation headquarters. The average person wandering around in London is breathing in equivalent air quality to what your victims, if I can call them that, in your study were breathing. Yes, essentially. I mean, um, on a polluted day, if you're walking down Oxford Street, that's what you would be exposed to. So it is within the realms of real world. Now, in some parts of the world, it's lower what we put in the chamber than what people will be exposed to walking around a major megacity. And, and what happens? Uh, what we found was when we tested their blood vessels, the blood vessels don't relax as much. They don't release as much of a, a certain protein which helps dissolve blood clots. And when we looked at how much the uh, body forms blood clots, you're much likely to form blood clots when you've been exposed. And all of these things we know are associated with why you have a heart attack. And the final thing that we did, we got some patients who'd had treated heart disease to wear a heart monitor. And when they cycled in the presence of the diesel exhaust, we could see two to three times higher stress in the heart than when they did the exact same exercise when it was filtered air and not dilute diesel exhaust. So there's clearly a, a huge connection between an acute exposure and what the physiology of the body and how it behaves. Does that argue then that there's not really any safe level of exposure? At the moment, um, what we have is associations, but the associations that we've looked at, there doesn't seem to be a bottom level that people have identified as yet, which is slightly worrying because you could say, well, you know, this is just a problem for the third world countries and megacities that are polluted. But actually, even within current air quality standards, there's evidence of still some residual risk and that if we get the air quality better, the risk will go down further. London's on that list. It's got one of the worst air qualities yeah. in the world. And this is a first world country. It's one of the most important cities in the world. It is. And we do need to do something about it. We need better active transport. We need people that get out of their cars, on their bikes, walking, um, using vehicles that are low emissions. We need to do this together as a society. And dare I say, perhaps some slightly better London train timetables too. That was David Newby from the University of Edinburgh. Got a biological brain buster or a chemical query? Ask the Naked Scientists. I just wanted to know about sleep paralysis. Is it a disorder or condition and can it be cured? How much energy is in moonlight? And could solar panel technology be used to capture this energy? When you cook food with any alcohol, how much, if any, percentage of the alcohol stays behind? Every Friday, The Naked Scientist and Cape Talk unravel the science behind those weird and wonderful questions you've always wanted to ask. Download and listen for free at thenakedscientist.com slash ask or simply search and subscribe to Ask The Naked Scientist on your favourite podcast app. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. This week we're focusing on heart disease and I've been along to the British Cardiovascular Society's annual conference to hear about the latest developments in the diagnosis and treatment of heart disease. On the way, why undead cells in our blood vessels could be causing arteries to fur up and scientists unveil a potential vaccine against heart attacks. Before that though, doctors have cautioned us for decades that increased salt intake leads to high blood pressure and there are lots of studies that support the association. But why this happens, no one knows. Could it be, though, Dominic Muller wonders, that dietary salt affects gut bacteria, which in turn affect the immune system, and this causes the high blood pressure? 
He doesn't know for sure, but it does look like a dose of microbes might reduce the risk of hypertension because mice fed on high-salt diets, or chow, and probiotics don't get high blood pressure. We know that salt promotes cardiovascular disease and then rise in blood pressure. And uh, whether this is somehow related to any interaction with the bacteria was the aim of the study. What did you do? We started in mice and gave mice standard chaw uh, with normal salt and one with high salt. And we wanted to find out whether we get changes in these bacteria. When you say changes, do you mean as in the types of bacteria that live there or do you mean the way those bacteria behave or both? Both. The first thing is that you uh, screen the abundance of bacteria, the composition of the different bacteria, to identify uh, which bacteria reacted. And we came up with a short list of eight bacteria, and then we could focus on the top-listed candidate, which was a lactobacillus. And then we focused uh, more specifically if we would use this one for a kind of treatment, whether we could improve cardiovascular health and affect the blood pressure regulation. When you give the salt diet and then you see these changes in bacteria, is this reflected in a change in the blood pressure of the animals, though? This is a tough question because we cannot definitely say that if you decrease the lactobacillus, that this increases the blood pressure. It could also be that both happens in parallel. We did the other way around. We supplemented with lactobacillus and we could prevent the increase in blood pressure. What about if you take animals that don't have any bacteria in their intestine, the so-called germ-free mice? They're born, they're never allowed to be colonized by bacteria. Do you see any influence if you do the experiments there? We could not at the moment measure their blood pressure because uh, you have to do surgery uh, to implant the blood pressure measurement device. And as soon as you do a surgery, you open the possibility for contamination with bacteria. And therefore, this experiment was not done yet. Putting all this together then, would your idea be that high salt in the diet changes the spectrum of bacteria that live in the intestine? This in turn, in some way signals to the cardiovascular system and translates into changes which include an increase in blood pressure. Is that a reasonable summary of where you think you are? Again, we have to be careful about causality. We know that the chain uh, you have mentioned exists. Whether one depends on the other is not clear yet. However, if you turn it around and if you think of strategies to supplement the missing bacteria by taking a probiotic, you can prevent the increase in blood pressure. And we are currently setting up a clinical study where we want to test this in humans. Do you have any theories as to how this is protecting the mice when they have the right spectrum of bacteria or the right levels of bacteria so that in these animals at least, they don't appear to get the high blood pressure. We learn more and more that cardiovascular disease and hypertension depends on the immune system. In the gut, we have a big number of immune cells. And it is known that the microbes affect the immune system in the gut. And newer research in the cardiovascular field also demonstrates that the immune system plays an important role in the regulation of blood pressure. So we speculate what we eat might have an influence on the gut, on the gut immune cells, and therefore on the development of high blood pressure. And that's a trial you're doing, is it? You're you're actually taking adults and supplementing them to see if you can get a change in their blood pressure in response to giving them more probiotics. Yes, we are currently in the preparation phase of this uh, clinical study, and this will exactly the question what we want to ask. Be interesting to see what that shows, won't it? Dominic Muller there, he's at the Max Delbruck Centre for Molecular Medicine in Berlin. Now, in the studio with me this week are Cambridge cardiologists Tian Zhao and Sharon Wilson. Sharon, we were talking about high blood pressure there, but why does high blood pressure damage arteries and increase your risk of heart disease? 
Or if you've managed to think about your blood pressure, the harder your heart has to work, the more strain you're putting on your heart. So you've got basically changes that are based on the vessel wall. So the wall is getting stiffer and everything is sort of getting a little bit harder for sort of it to distend or sort of change in shape. You also have the effect directly on the actual heart muscle where if it has to maintain a higher blood pressure, it gets thicker. As it gets thicker, the heart doesn't relax particularly well. So it has to work harder again to relax and contract and fill with blood in order to get blood to go forward. So there's a couple of effects of why we prefer your blood pressure to be within the target range. Also, it intuitively feels to me as though blood rushing through blood vessels which are tighter at higher pressure is more likely to damage the blood vessel than blood which is flowing in a more sedate way. Is that a reasonable that we, we more see with valvular disease from the heart rather than actual sort of blood pressure changes. It's more the distensibility of your vessel is, is the main issue with having a higher blood pressure. And it's not just uh, your heart that's at risk from uh, hypertension, is it, Tiana? You could get other bits of your body which are going to get damaged by blood pressure that's too high. Well, uh, indeed, yeah. So the organs that mainly are affected are the brain, which uh, in which case we get strokes, the heart will be discussed, and also the kidneys. And we know that every two millimetres of mercury increase in your blood pressure, you get a 10% increase in your stroke risk, a 7% increase in your heart risk. So actually, the closest correlation is actually with stroke. And normal blood pressure is 120 over 80, Well, give or take. Give or take, yeah. It's, it's what we aim to achieve. Often patients don't achieve that, but the closer we get to that, the lower your risk. Now, Dominic was talking about salt in the diet, and his theory is that this, or at least is partly attributable to its effect on microorganisms in the gut, which might make the immune system make you have higher blood pressure. What other theories are there for why salt intake puts your blood pressure up? Yeah, so we know quite well that the more salt you eat, the higher the blood pressure. But the reason of that is not well understood. And when, when that's the case in medicine, often the reason is that it's, there's a number of reasons all coming together. We know that uh, as you eat more salt, the more salt in your body, the body retains water to balance the concentration of salt in the body. And as more water is retained, there's more volume. Um, and therefore, the blood pressure goes up is one idea. The thing that I find wrong with that is that actually it appears to be how long you've been exposed to salt over your lifetime that determines your blood pressure, doesn't it? Because I could eat shovelfuls of salt tomorrow. I might get a short-term increase in my blood pressure, but then it would go back to normal. But if I carried on doing that day after day after day relentlessly, I'm not going to swell up like a balloon, so I can't continually be taking on board water. There must be something else going on. Well, the idea is that uh, there's, a, there's a thermostat in the body which, consul- which controls uh, how much salt one should take in. And with, with a prolonged exposure of salt over time, that thermostat is adjusted to retain more and more salt. And the result of a number of years, uh, the blood pressure goes up. And as, that's probably why we see it as a disease of aging as well. As people get older, people get high blood pressure. And linking that to what Dominic Muller was saying, is it possible then that that thermostat for salt could be being influenced by what the dietary conditions are or what the microbes in the gut are saying? to the brain and the cardiovascular system. Exactly. So you know, um, there are several factors which could be influencing the thermostat and, and um, gut bacteria could certainly be one of those. Thank you, Tian. Now, it's a fact of life that we're all ageing all the time. And as we age, an increasing proportion of the cells in our tissues become zombified. They aren't dead, but they're no longer properly alive either. And they're definitely troublemakers. Speaking with Katie Haler, Cambridge University's Martin Bennett studies how these so-called senescent cells might be linked with heart disease. Cell senescence describes a point in a cell's life where it can no longer divide. It's basically reached old age in cell terms, but it hasn't quite yet died. The importance of that is that the cell can't fulfil its function, and it also, at that stage, generates inflammation. There's a lot of excitement about cell senescence at the moment, you know, a whole range of diseases. So senescent cells have been identified in heart disease, in dementia, in liver disease, in kidney disease, in arthritis. And increasingly, we've been able to work out the consequences of having senescent cells. And what that means is there may be potential treatments based upon eliminating these cells in the future. Can you explain how this relates to the concept of a whole person ageing. As we age, a greater proportion of our cells 
become senescent. So there are certain tissues in the body which constantly regenerate. So your bone marrow, for instance, regenerates forming blood. But many other tissues can't regenerate if they get damaged, particularly the brain and the heart. What that means is that as the cells age, they are not replaced. And you have more and more of these sort of almost like zombie or undead cells around the body. They're not killed, they're not cleared, but they can cause damage. So they're kind of dormant? No, they're not dormant because they're very, very active. They can't fulfill their function. So if they're a liver cell, they can't perform the normal functions of a liver cell or a kidney cell likewise or a heart cell or a blood vessel cell. But what they do do is lots of detrimental other things. So they signal to other cells causing inflammation. We're particularly interested in the cells that make up the blood vessel lining because when those become senescent, again, they can cause problems with the blood vessel function. We study patients who have heart attacks or have strokes, and those diseases are caused by what's called atherosclerosis. Increasingly, we can find senescent cells in those atherosclerotic plaques. They cause a problem because they promote inflammation and they stop the normal blood vessel cells functioning properly. What's exciting is some fairly new data that's come out that suggests that if you clear those cells then you can improve the functioning of many, many organs in the body and you may even be able to prolong lifespan. So we talk about lifespan and health span. Health span is the number of years that you have of healthy living. Lifespan is obviously until you die. And removal of senescent cells may actually promote improving function of many organs as well as potentially improving lifespan as well. Wow, okay, so there is potential to extend the life of organs, and even ourselves, or is that, is that in the realm of science fiction? No, it's not in the realms of science fiction. Um, certainly the, the, in animal models, removal of these senescent cells has been shown to improve function of many, many organs, to slow or in some cases partially reverse particular diseases, and in some creatures can actually extend their lifespan as well. Is there any possibility of, instead of removing these senescent cells, these cells that are no longer dividing, of reactivating them in some way? Yes, so another option is instead of removing them, is just switching them off. So if, if, you, if you don't get rid of them, but you just stop them producing things that cause inflammation, that may be just as good. Switching them back on again is more challenging because they have irreversibly reached this state. And if you try and kick them back into making them divide, then the danger is that you might generate cancer. So we would prefer to either get rid of them or just switch off the pro-inflammatory side of things. So what would you envision for the next five, ten years in terms of finding these senescent cells and getting rid of them? So we're getting much, much better at finding them and we're getting very much better at working out how they signal, how they're controlled and what their consequences are. There's also major interest now from industry to design drugs to remove these cells silently because you can imagine if they're present throughout the body and if you can remove them, then you may improve functioning of many, many organs associated just with ageing. Absolutely fascinating. Martin Bennett from the University of Cambridge. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. You're listening to The Naked Scientists and I'm Chris Smith. This week, we're bringing you the latest discoveries from the world of cardiology because we've been along with the British Heart Foundation to the British Cardiovascular Society's annual conference in Manchester. Still to come, some exciting new approaches that researchers are developing to treat, reverse and prevent heart attacks, including how scientists are working on a vaccine for heart disease. But first, Adam Murphy and Marika Ottman are back with some more quick-fire facts, this time on simple ways that you can reduce your risk of having heart problems. Heart attacks are very common. One person in three will be directly affected by heart disease during their lifetime. 
There are lots of factors that increase the risk of developing heart disease. Smoking is probably the most important one. Toxins in cigarette smoke damage the walls of arteries, increasing the chances that they will fur up and block. Nicotine, meanwhile, puts up blood pressure, so don't smoke. Family history is also a huge factor. If you have close relatives who developed heart disease or suffered heart attacks at a young age, then there could be a genetic component, and that means you might have a higher risk too. This includes being affected by a condition called familial hypercholesterolemia. This is where the levels of cholesterol are too high in the blood, making it more likely that the cholesterol will build up in the walls of arteries, causing them to narrow. You can't have a test to monitor your cholesterol levels and tell whether you are at a higher risk. And if your levels are high, fortunately there are drugs called statins that can reduce the production of cholesterol in the body, lowering the level and cutting your risk. Statins are very safe and very effective. They can reduce your chances of having a heart attack by up to a third. High blood pressure, or hypertension, is another major risk factor for heart disease. Blood pressure that is regularly too high damages the linings of our arteries, increasing the chances that fatty deposits, called atheroma, will build up and narrow the artery. You should ask your doctor to check your blood pressure next time you visit. But don't be alarmed if it's apparently high the first time you take it. You might just be stressed or one of a number of people with a condition called white coat hypertension, which means their blood pressure goes shooting up whenever they go near a doctor. If that turns out to be you, you can buy a home blood pressure monitoring machine and take your own blood pressure regularly when you're relaxed at home. If it's still high under these conditions, you might need drugs called antihypertensives to bring your blood pressure back down to normal levels, which will dramatically cut your heart attack risk. Another good way to reduce blood pressure and benefit your health overall is to take regular exercise. This doesn't mean that you need to go mad. Park your car a bit further from work and walk the rest of the way. Take the stairs rather than lift when you can. Cycle to the station. Or get a dog and take it for a daily 20-minute walk. It all adds up. And exercise is a great way to stay in shape, which is also important. Because being overweight is also a big heart attack risk factor. It increases cholesterol levels, puts up your blood pressure, and you're more likely to develop diabetes, which is a serious cardiovascular risk factor in its own right. Diet is also very important. Regularly eating fresh fruits and vegetables, reducing red meat consumption, and avoiding fatty foods like chips, fried and fast food all helps. And alcohol in moderation, of course. Of course. Just the one bottle of Shiraz, then, rather than two. Now, with me are cardiologists Tian Zhao and Sharon Wilson. Now, Sharon, we've heard people talking on the programme about high cholesterol, and we heard Adam and Marika mention statins to control cholesterol. What are statins and how do they actually work? So statins basically interfere with a way that the body processes cholesterol to block it from being produced within the liver. So if you've got a reduced amount of cholesterol coming out of your liver, your blood levels naturally drop, so then you don't go and develop atheroma within the vessels of interest, such as the vessels within the heart. What about how well tolerated they are? Statins are relatively well tolerated. The problem that we have is when people are on very large doses of statins. There's a large range of the medications that we can start at a very low dose, which is um, up to a very, very high dose. When people come into the hospital after having a heart attack, we start them usually on a very high dose, and you need to go back to your local doctor or your local cardiologist to adjust your dose back to an appropriate number, depending on how your cholesterol responds. Does everyone respond to a statin, or are there some people that that just can't be doing with them? The majority of people actually do respond quite well to statins, but there is a subset of population that actually do have quite significant side effects. And we're talking about muscle pains within sort of the top of your legs, you're unable to get out of a chair, and there are alternatives of different medications that are available on the market that can help these people as well. Now, Tian, some people say that they regularly take aspirin, just a baby aspirin, 75 milligrams a day. And they do that despite not having had a diagnosis of heart disease or heart attack. They do it because they believe it will reduce their risk in the long term. Is there merit in that argument? That's not the advice that I would give to the public. I think if you're worried about your risk of having heart disease, I think you should go to your primary care doctor, your GP, and have a discussion about it. And there are quite sophisticated ways that we can try and calculate your risk. And depending on, on what that risk is, there's different advice we can offer. 
aspirin is a very good drug, but it is not without side effects. And that it is unfortunately an irritant of the stomach, for example, and can cause uh, stomach ulcers. So it's something uh, that I think people should discuss with the doctor. Doing that consultation, there are great other alternatives to medication, for example, lifestyle changes, things like that, to try and reduce your risk, not just taking tablets. Many of the interviews that we've heard here have talked about inflammation in your arteries as a cause of arterial disease. Since aspirin is an anti-inflammatory, is there not one school of thought that could argue if I take an anti-inflammatory, I could slow down the progression of the inflammation and therefore the progression of arterial disease, particularly in people who might be at high risk of a heart attack, for example. They've got a very strong family history or very high cholesterol, high blood pressure, stressful job, etc. That's a great thought. We've looked at aspirin as an anti-inflammatory in heart disease. Unfortunately, most of the data that, which shows that it acts as an anti-inflammatory is at much higher doses than prescribed clinically. And therefore, I think the majority of the effect is not there. Thank you very much, Tian. Now, still to come on the programme, a new nanoparticle treatment that can reduce heart attack damage by 50%. But before that, as we heard earlier in the programme, one in three people is destined to develop vascular disease, meaning furred up arteries that can cause heart attacks and strokes. But might it be possible to vaccinate people against this happening? Swedish heart specialist Jan Nilsson at Lund University thinks he's got a way of doing just that. The disease I'm interested in is atherosclerosis, where fat accumulates in the arteries. This is mainly cholesterol. And we know that this cholesterol is being oxidised. And that induces inflammation in the artery. And the inflammation activates a scar process which gives rise to plaques which are focal thickenings of the artery. The worst outcome of this is they may rupture and then you get the thrombosis which occludes the artery and that's the main cause of myocardial infarction and stroke. And how do you think we might be able to intervene? Because there are drugs that will lower the cholesterol level, that's one approach, but how else might we be able to intervene to reduce the risk of this happening? Yes, that's correct. We have the statins, which reduce optimally the risk by 50%. But we have a remaining 50% where we need to find new types of therapies. And we think that one could be to get the immune system to help. So what, like a vaccine against arterial disease? Yes. So what happens is that when the cholesterol is oxidized in the artery, it changes structure so the immune system can't recognize it. So it assumes this is something that comes from a bacteria or virus and it attacks it. Oh, that's intriguing. So if you could therefore what educate the immune system that it's not harmful when it's in the oxidized form, it wouldn't be so harmful. Is that the rationale for your approach? Exactly. So the optimal way for the immune system to react is to recognize this as damaged self substances and try to clean it away. And we can try to educate the immune system to do just that. How? Then you take a piece of the bad cholesterol molecule, which is called LDL, and with adjuvants that directly stimulate the generation of these protective immune cells then you can get the immune system to act protectively. Right, so by introducing the immune system to what the oxidized bad form of the cholesterol looks like, mm -hmm. with something to make the immune system get excited, that's the adjuvant, mm -hmm. you should get, what, an antibody or immune cells or both in response to that? Yes, there are two types of protective responses that you can activate. One is the antibodies, which can then just help to clear away this oxidized LDL. The other one is to activate a form of immune cells which are suppressive. So they go in and they act anti-inflammatory, and by that way they can stabilize uh, the vascular wall. So this is like a two-pronged approach. On the one hand, you've got the immune system being able to remove the bad cholesterol, and on the other hand, you've got the immune system saying, now don't get too excited by this cholesterol, it won't harm you. Yes, that's a very good way to describe it. So actually, rather than making the immune system making things worse, you can get the immune systems to help. If one considers a different approach though, which is for Alzheimer's disease, one pharmaceutical company had a vaccine which made the person's immune system go into the brain and find the protein that was building up that was causing Alzheimer's disease. The idea being it would remove that protein, the trial for that had to be stopped because the brain became inflamed when they did that. Is there not a danger that with what you're doing, if you're programming the person's immune system to recognise the bad cholesterol, if they've got arteries full of it throughout their body, could they not get worse inflammation? 
Yes, we learned a lot from that study, and the mistake they did was to choose an adjuvant that made the immune cells very aggressive, and that ended up that the immune cells did more harm than protection. So we learned a lot there, so now we cannot choose adjuvants to get milder responses from the immune systems, and, for example, focusing on generating antibodies rather than aggressive immune cells. What stage are you at? Are you actually doing this now? Do you have a vaccine that can do what you're suggesting you'd like to achieve? We have a vaccine which we can show uh, works well in experimental models. We're now developing so it's safe to give to humans and we hope to be able to do a first clinical trial in in a couple of years. So when you say an experimental model, what are these, mice or something? Yes, these are mostly mice that we use as experimental models for, for atherosclerosis. So what did you actually do with the mice and how were they affected by the vaccine? We give the mice a high cholesterol diet. Was that like rodent junk food? Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> and what happens when you do this? In the mice, we can see that the formation of the atherosclerotic plaques is reduced by about 50%. That's a lot. That's a lot. And uh, we are quite optimistic that that could be something that makes a difference clinically. But if you can get such a dramatic difference, why is this not already in clinical trials? Why is a pharmaceutical company not chewing your arm off for access to the technology? Or are they? Uh, unfortunately, not at the moment. Uh, there are safety concerns that we have to take seriously. Nobody has used this type of therapy before. So there's obviously a risk that we could induce some sort of adverse immune response, which we can't stop. So we have to be sure that we're doing the right thing. The safety test that we need to do before needs to be done carefully, and they take time. Jan Nielsen, and uh, he reckons he's very close to developing a vaccine that will block heart disease. In the meantime, though, stay off the junk food. Developing new drugs is extremely costly. In fact, the estimated test tube to needle time for a new agent is 10 years and the price tag is billions. But it might not always be necessary to invent a new drug if you can find an existing drug that happens, as a side effect, to have a beneficial effect on the heart, which is what Ify Mordi from the University of Dundee has done with the diabetes agent metformin. Katie Haler spoke with him. So metformin is used as a treatment for type 2 diabetes. It reduces insulin resistance, causes you to lose weight, and this is obviously beneficial in terms of your general health. It also is associated with improvements in the metabolism of the heart. One of the pathways that we do know about and is more well understood is that metformin acts on a substance called AMPK, which is activated protein kinase. This substance is involved in molecular signaling within the heart and is associated with the fibrosis and enlargement of the heart muscle. And metformin reduces this, and therefore this is one reason why it may have beneficial effects on the heart. Well, first of all, how do you go about linking a drug that's being used routinely in diabetes with a heart condition? Numerous studies have been done which have shown that metformin is beneficial in patients with diabetes. And large studies, including done in the UK, have shown that Metformin use in patients with diabetes is associated with reductions in heart attacks. In fact, in one study, there was a striking 33% reduction in heart attacks and strokes in patients using metformin compared to other diabetes drugs. So this suggested to us that perhaps metformin was having beneficial effects on the heart muscle. What we wanted to do was to try and translate this to use in patients without diabetes. It's something that hasn't been done before, and this is really the exciting bit of our research. So how do you go about doing that then? So the research was done in two parts. And the first part was to look at electronic health records of patients that were using metformin that had a condition which predisposes to thickening of the heart muscle called aortic stenosis. This is a condition where there's narrowing of the main heart valve that lets blood out of the heart. This increase in pressure causes the heart to have to do more work. The heart muscle thickens up, which includes fibrosis and scarring of the heart muscle. OK, so take us back to your study So the first part of this study was a retrospective study where we looked at people with this condition called aortic stenosis. In this condition, diabetes is associated with worse outcomes. So people with diabetes and this thickening of the heart muscle are more likely to die because of this. And what we found was that the diabetic patients in the study on metformin had a similar outcome as the patients who were not diabetic. In contrast, Diabetic patients who weren't taking metformin had a 44% increased likelihood of having a heart attack or a stroke that led to death. This suggested to us that metformin use was associated with better outcomes and less likelihood of dying of a heart problem. Presumably now you need to do this with people who don't have diabetes at all. 
So is that what you did next? Yes, exactly. So what we did in this study, which was called the MET Remodel study, was to look at patients with previous heart attacks, and they also had thickening of the heart muscle. One group were given metformin treatment for a year, and the other group were given placebo. And we studied the thickening of the heart muscle at the start of the study and at the end of the study after one year. What we found was that the patients in the metformin group had twice as much reduction in their heart muscle size compared to the patients in the placebo group, proving for the first time in humans that metformin use was associated with a reduction in this adverse thickening of the heart muscle. What happens next then? This has provided us with some evidence that metformin could be used in this purpose. What we need to do now is to look at this in a large group of patients to see if this truly does lead to improvements in heart attacks and strokes in patients without diabetes. Ify Mordi speaking with Katie Haler. Now, when a person has a heart attack, it's usually because a blockage has formed in one of the coronary arteries that supply blood to the heart muscle itself, and this cuts off the supply of oxygen and nutrients to the tissue, which then begins to die. One consequence of this is that the immune system moves in and triggers inflammation, which can add further insult to the injury and exacerbate the damage. But drugs that can damp down inflammation can't currently access the injured tissue very well. So a canny scientist from Taiwan has designed nanoparticles loaded with an anti-inflammatory drug cargo that can piggyback on the very same immune cells that migrate from the bloodstream into the damaged heart. Patrick Shea. So what we've been trying to do is improve cardiovascular repair and regeneration after injury, particularly for heart attack. Because after the cardiovascular event, they have ischemia that will cause tissue damage. And eventually they also have inflammation. They will cause more and more damage to the tissues. So when someone has, say, a heart attack and there's a lack of blood flow to the heart muscle, that directly causes damage, but you also get inflammation, and the inflammation causes damage. And you're saying you want to find a way to stop the inflammation. Right, because the ischemia or lack of blood flow is a short-term damage. Inflammation can prolong for weeks or even months and they cause a progressive damage to the tissue. So how are you trying to do this? How can you control the inflammation? So we try to develop anti-inflammatory drugs into the tissues. But as you can imagine, it's very difficult for directly delivered drugs into the injured sites. So we need some new technologies to help us. But we've got lots of anti-inflammatory drugs, things like aspirin, which we've had for 100-plus years. So... Why is it a problem getting the drugs into the tissue? Because, as you can imagine, whenever you uptake a drug or you receive injectionable drugs, they will be circulated into the whole bodies with very few going to the heart. So we need to develop a new technology to help them get to a specific area want to deliver the drug for the heart. And how are you doing that? So we use uh, nanotechnologies. We formulate... Uh, nanoparticles and we load the anti-inflammatory drugs in the nanoparticles and then we can add a new targeting materials outside of the particles. So once we inject the new nanodrugs, they will be specifically targeted to the heart. Right, so you, you build a nanoparticle that's got the drug inside but your problem is still how you get the nanoparticle to go where it's needed. Yeah. So you've got some crafty way of making the nanoparticle do that so how do you get the nanoparticle into say the injured heart then so we learn from the mother nature there are cells in the circulation called monocytes they naturally will go to the site of damages of the heart and we develop nanomedicines which can stick to the monocytes so they will be brought into the damaged areas for delivering a therapeutic drug that's crafty so because there are these cells naturally going to the damaged areas, you're piggybacking on those cells with your nanoparticles to get your drug only where it needs to go. Exactly. How do you persuade the nanoparticles to stick to the monocytes? So during the monocytes uh, targeting to the heart, platelets, another type of cells, they will stick it to the monocytes. So we fabricate the nanomedicines with similar sticking abilities of the platelets. So once we inject them into the circulations, they will stick it to the monocytes and will be brought to the injury sites. So let me make sure I've got this correct. So there are monocytes in the bloodstream and they naturally go where there's damage. There are also 
bits of cells called platelets in the bloodstream which naturally stick onto monocytes and where the monocytes go, the platelets will go. So you're stealing what the platelets do, putting that on your nanoparticles so your nanoparticles will stick to the monocyte and then be carted off into the heart to, to, to access the damaged area. Right. That's the power of what we said we learn from the mother nature. So. Does it work? Do you actually get more drug going in by doing this? Yes, we did. We can increase a 50-fold of more drugs to be delivered into the injury site. 50-fold? That's a lot. So if, if you were to just measure how much drug if you popped a pill versus if you did it the way you're doing it, you're saying at least 50 times more drug goes in. So typically, if you just simply inject a drug into uh, circulations, then less than 0.1% of a drug will be in the heart. But by the technology we developed, we can achieve 5% or even more of the drugs to be delivered into the heart. And when you do these experiments, if you, if you take a heart that's been experimentally damaged by a heart attack, do you actually see a reduction in the level of damage when you use these particles that you've developed? So uh, we created animal models for heart attack. And we find that uh, by delivery of these drugs, we can reduce the heart damage size by 50%. We can improve the cardio function by 50% as well. So such doings, we can prolong the heart function and the animal life as well. Has anyone tried to do what you're doing before, or is this a first of trying to do it this way? Yeah, this is a first. And it's a very exciting first. Patrick Shea there, he's from the Academica Sinica in Taiwan. Now with me are Tian Zhao and Sharon Wilson, who are two cardiologists at uh, Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. Just in closing, what are the areas that you think are probably the most promising or the most important to surmount in the whole field? Tian first, what do you think? I think inflammation is the next frontier, right? So the, these narrow rings in the heart, which cause heart attacks, they're made of lipid or cholesterol or fat. We know that. In the arteries. In the, the arteries. Heart muscle. Yeah. Exactly. But it's more complicated than that. It's about how the body reacts to this lipid, and inflammation is a major part of that. And we're here in Cambridge doing great work trying to treat that inflammation. So Professor Bennett talking about this, these quiescent cells that, that are, are causing the inflammation, and he's doing great work trying to treat them. And I think that goes back to the very nature of human beings, of aging. Sharon? I'm more a clinical cardiologist, so I'm more interested in the new work that's happening with biomarkers and actually getting the patient in sorted out. So it's very worthwhile to have lots of work within research in the basic science, but we also need to remember the person at the end of the equation is a patient. Indeed. Now, when you say biomarkers, what does that mean? So that's looking at assays like troponin or what you've previously mentioned of the myosin C, of ways of detecting is a person in front of me having a heart attack or having damage to their heart at this exact point? How can I prevent them from going on to have a major issue and how we can treat them through the system efficiently and effectively. Many people argue, though, that by the time you've got a person with a heart attack in front of you, it's a bit late. We should have intervened sooner. Are there any things on the horizon that enable us to make better predictions of the people who are at risk? So even using the biomarkers in one of the a different way, so they're using the biomarkers with myosin C, primarily looking at diseases such as aortic stenosis, which is a valvular problem, rather than a heart attack, and they're looking to see is where is the point where we can intervene before the heart is actually sustaining damage. And that's where I feel this is quite exciting. There's also a lot of work with people who've had a heart transplant looking at biomarkers there to see are we treating these patients effectively? How can we prevent them from rejecting their organs and how can we make sure that the organs that we have available are being utilised appropriately? What about the role of genetics? We've got the 100,000 Genomes Project in the NHS, for example. There's been enormous strides made in sequencing people's genomes. Are we seeing strong associations between certain combinations or cocktails of genes and people who are at risk of certain types of heart outcome. We are. We The 100,000 Genomes Project is a fantastic initiative, which is the NHS is behind. And we've seen benefits even in our clinical practice of some of our patients who've had problems with a dilated aorta or the big tube that comes out of the heart. You've got particular associations which you may not have a specific gene that's been identified, but you can put their information in, get particular panels, get particular genes to identify new types targets to go, you might have a person who's in Swansea who has a problem, you might have a person in Cambridge who has a problem, and their clinical data, you can try and get them to overlap to identify new targets, and I feel that that's very important. Yeah, the whole big data of being able to look at very large numbers of people 
all at once across, across a population, that's very valuable, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's where some of our greatest gains in cardiology is going to come from in the next couple of years. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to find out whether you're right, aren't we? Because uh, we'll have to have you back in about <laughs> five years' time and see if uh, actually your predictions have come true. That would be very interesting, and I have a feeling that I will probably win against Jan and his inflammation. Well, it, well, I think the thing is your your solution, Sharon, is slightly more tractable in terms of looking for markers and that can predict things, whereas actually trying to intervene and change things is always going to be a bit more risky, and that's going to take a bit longer, isn't it, do you think? We are doing work already in Cambridge trying to get the next step, so we're hopeful. Tian Zhao and Sharon Wilson, thank you both very much. That is it for this week. Thank you to the British Heart Foundation for their help with the programme. And do, of course, join us next week because we're going to be delving into volcanoes and their impacts on the planet. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC, the STFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.